Hey everyone, welcome to Zonan Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. Uh, the show is now back from a fairly long hiatus. I apologize for the delay. Over the last two months, and really over the last year, uh, there have been a lot of big changes happening in regards to streaming and broadcast, uh, quite a few of which have actually necessitated a few changes for Zonan Canada. Moving forward, I'm planning to place more focus on series retrospectives, um, looking at both popular and obscure titles, including series that have only aired in French. Um, while this could change, uh, the next show I'm, cur- I'm currently planning to look at is Albator, uh, also known as Captain Harlock. Uh, basically, I'm going to watch the whole show and do as much research as I can on its Canadian context uh, and do a show about it and have one or maybe two people on to, to also share their thoughts on the series. I'm hoping to do a few more things as well. So as always, uh, be sure to keep an eye on the blog at zonn.ca, uh, the Facebook page, and the Twitter uh, at Zonn Canada. Uh, also, my email inbox has been pretty empty lately. Uh, I could really use some feedback to make sure that my audience is, is satisfied with what I've been delivering. Uh, as always, you can reach me through email, zonncanada at gmail.com. A good portion of the episode that follows uh, focuses on The Secret Path, which is an animated special that recently aired on CBC directed by Gord Downey from The Tragically Hip. And it is without question one of the best pieces of television to be released this year, from Canada or any country. Uh, It focuses on the incredibly important subject of residential schools in Canada. And I'd just like to give everyone a heads up that we discuss this, quite frankly, in the podcast. Um, It is more sensitive subject matter than what we usually talk about on the show, so just be aware in case you have difficulty with that kind of thing. Uh, We definitely paint a dire picture, but please do not let this discourage you from checking out The Secret Path. Part of what makes this thing amazing uh, is that it approaches this whole subject in a way that a blunt discussion honestly never could. Uh, And it is something that I strongly feel that everyone needs to see, especially if you're a believer in the power of animation. All right, let's uh, get the show started. So Ian Whitcomb is uh, joining me for this episode. Hello. Hey, Ian. Uh, Good to have you back. Um, So for the bulk of this episode, we are going to be focusing uh, and just kind of discussing the secret path. Uh, you may have heard about it. It was a uh, an hour-long animated feature directed by uh, Gord Downey from The Tragically Hip. Uh, it aired on CBC uh, last Sunday night at 9 p.m. Um, Where do we begin? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, in late August, CBC broadcast The Tragically Hip's final concert. Um, it was a really big deal. They did it without commercial interruption. Uh, they were highly praised for this move. It was Hail is a milestone in, in cultural presentation on the on for through our public broadcaster. Uh, much was made about the the deal specifically that CBC made with with Gore Downey, who of who of course has terminal brain cancer and is been working on some personal projects as a result of that. Apparently, this concert was not the extent of the agreement that was made with CBC um, around the same time that this concert aired. Uh, details were emerging of another project he had been working on since about 2013, uh, known as The Secret Path. Um, at the heart of the project is basically a 10-song concept album uh, that was intended to raise awareness and more engagement over the issue of residential schools in Canada. Um, specifically, it focuses on the death of uh, Cheney Wenjack. His name is Cheney Wenjack. He was given the anglicized name of Charlie in a lot of in- inquiry documents and in the in the press. Yeah, in the uh, 
there, there was a famous article in McLean's magazine uh, where he was referred to as Charlie, at least in the title. The story behind him is that uh, he was he was 12 years old and he was a student who went to Cecilia Jeffrey Indian Residential School, uh, which was in Kenora, Ontario. Um, and he escaped with 12 other students, apparently, and he attempted to return home. Uh, his home was 400 kilometers away. Uh, he basically wandered along a railroad track and he was uh, found dead on those railroad tracks um, on October 22nd, 1966. So basically this project that Gord Downey worked on was released and sort of uh, came to fruition roughly the uh, uh, the anniversary of, of, of when he was found. So in addition to the album that Gore Downey made focusing on this issue, he also commissioned, he also worked with, uh, with, um, comic artist Jeff Lemire, um, on a graphic novel. And the, uh, the visuals and the soundtrack were combined to also produce this animated film. I don't know when production started on the animated film. Um, obviously it had been in the works for quite a while. Uh, it, it Obviously, CBC was involved to some capacity. It, it said it was a CBC production at the beginning. Uh, I don't know how much involvement they actually had uh, in in making it, uh, considering that the 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 deal with with Gore Downey was recent. But in any case, they had they played a very important role by exhibiting this in a uh, in a primetime slot. Now, this was on my radar. Uh, I was I was going to check it out at some point. I wasn't planning on checking out the the live broadcast, but uh, I was talking to Ian the other night, and he implored me to make sure I saw this as fast as possible um, because it was as you said it was one of the uh, one of the greatest the best television production that you have seen this year and I you know what I think I am inclined to agree with you this was definitely uh, definitely stunning uh, stunning work very important work very I'm sure also troubling work for many people, but also just an amazing take on 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 this issue. To have this also broadcast on a public broadcaster in like the the primest of prime time slots at Sunday at 9 p.m. without commercial interruption, I think is incredibly important. I mean, what what were your thoughts on on this, Ian? I, I don't I don't know where to begin. I mean. I heard, I first heard about this at work that night. I work in youth corrections. I work at a, uh, youth, op- youth open detention and custody center that we deal primarily for indigenous clients. Uh, I was told by my supervisor that this was playing, that we were planning to watch this. They were planning to watch this with the youth on the night shift and that, and they recommended me to watch it as well. I had no idea what to expect. I thought I thought it would be a documentary, something like a passionate eye expert on the event. I did know that Gordown was involved. I did know that he made a, rec- a record. I knew that there was a graphic novel that was coming out. I had no idea of the format this was going to be, which is song to song animated presentation of the graphic novel for 50 minutes, commercial free, and just just a stunning achievement. Yeah, it's it's really kind of difficult to pin down like what this final product is i mean it is a, it, it, a short film in a lot of ways it, you know it kind of overlaps between a documentary take on an issue but also a a highly art house kind of take and oh you know i would not call this you know entertaining in the conventional sense that 
uh, we usually associate entertainment with, like uh, as 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 escapism or something that you gain satisfaction from watching. But in, in a way, of just as as entertainment as a category separate from the others, it does c- kind of touch in that category as well. In in a I don't want to say accessible, but or even relatable, because I don't think this is something that, it, that, like, the material it presents is not necessarily something that most people would be able to relate with, but it's just, it's done in this way that, that invites people to connect with it. It's very, it's like, it's very raw and human in a way that I think anyone can connect with. You used the term fragile in your tweet, which I thought was a great, a great term. It's, it's very fragile, very vulnerable. Um, as you mentioned, it is very surprising just as a, as a work. Um, cause like when you say that you're going to do some kind of an animated film about the issue of residential schools in Canada, what you're generally going to expect is that it's going to be like some kind of, of, of lecture presented in this, as this kind of self-flagellation, you know, that, that kind of mentality would kind of encourage disengagement with, with this issue, but that's not what this is at all. It's just engaging in a way that, uh, I think can, can, can reach anyone, even if, uh, you know, you're you're very distant from the the, ty- the types of experiences that are that are being portrayed, quite frankly, in in the film. The tone is really key because it's fragile and it's relatable, but we're dealing with issues of systemic injustice, uh, cultural genocide, and ingrained cultural trauma, and it doesn't shy away from that either. No, it doesn't shy away that that this this child was vic- was victimized. And the McLean's article, and I think the, I think the final product, The Secret Path, shows this, that it's very likely Cheney had no, no idea why he was being abducted. He had no idea what kind of place Cecilia Jeffrey was. And he had no idea why these people were doing what they were doing. Because the relationships between what we consider faculty and student, which is, which is so be, beyond what actually ha- actually happened there in terms of how we can relate to it is is, is stunning. Just talking about residential schools specifically, the, as we get a a more full picture of what has happened here, just from a cultural perspective, the way to present it, the way to have people engage with it and learn and understand has is is so difficult because um, you have to strike a balance in order to uh, educate people not disengage people have people just be able to uh just be able to break down barriers between perceptions on why this happened or how people were affected the secret the secret path does this in a way that i i don't want to say didn't think was possible but certainly in a way that uh we haven't seen before i think one of the big things is that this particular story of chani for the most part can be dramatized without without taking place inside the residential because i think that was a very important part of it is yeah. that, that that we we see only brief glimpses of it mostly at the beginning and then through flashback as he uh as he as he escapes i think i think it's actually quite vital that the the main thrust of the story the actual progressive narrative is not set in the school it is his escape from the school i think grounding it in that really um really is what really places the perspective on it because of course it's hard for for anyone to i guess if you weren't in a residential school it's hard to place yourself in the residential school the idea of this young boy wandering in the snow uh you know cold and starving and alone ironically is probably easier for a person to connect with than 
you know, this this uh, imposing idea of being placed in an institution. Some of the realities of institutions like these schools probably cannot be straightforwardly told in fiction. Yeah, because you're dealing with you're dealing with medical ex- experimentation. You're dealing with the sexual abuse. You're dealing you're dealing with the unmarked graves. You're dealing with the the children sleeping in their own excrement. That can't be dealt with directly in a fi- in a fictional context for the most part. Just like just like a lot of Holocaust imagery and a lot of Holocaust a lot of Holocaust testimony can't can't be put on on show like that. That's really the that's really best served by allegory. Yeah, framing and perspective are are very important. And I think also in terms of of dealing with things like like atrocities, have, having it animated or having it done in a in a highly stylized fashion, um, I think definitely provides that sort of reality buffer. Which of course is one of the common things that people say about something like Grave of the Fireflies. Just looking at this as an animated work, it, it's interesting because obviously the project had been worked on since 2013. I can't find any information on when production of this actually started just the way things are funded in canada we hear about animated projects that go go on here often for years before they actually we actually get a final product with with the secret path i mean i think the the first mentions of it came around when uh cbc broadcast the tragically hip concert um that's when the collaboration with cbc first came to light obviously this film was not produced in that short amount of time it's it's it has to have been in the works for, for for many months i find it kind of amazing that this in- incredibly uh provocative work um which i am f- fearful is not going to get the the type of uh attention it deserves um at least not outside of canada in terms of uh of of recognition um it all it almost just seemed to come out of nowhere uh and that's very strange to me it it, it seems to go against what we're used to in terms of um not only what we see in just canadian film production in general but but what we kind of expect from the CBC. And I want to say that it's like shocking, bizarro moment of, of the CBC kind of pulling itself together and, and providing the kind of important cultural institution that, that we should have. But it almost, it, it goes beyond that as well. Uh, it, I mean, the, in the, in the process of, of, of reconciliation goes beyond the, the responsibility of any one organization. But this, this really deals with it in a way that I didn't think that I didn't think anybody would be able to, to, Convey. I think it's also important to note that uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Committee is a federal committee that was funded in 2008, and testimony has been coming in, and they've released a 4,000-page document that will be looked over and studied with re- with recommendations for the years to come. This could be the beginning of of a huge change in how our history is taught in schools for going forward. So. I think the time, I think the timing does indicate CBC's willingness and sensitivity to this, to the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, and that they're willing to be the first ones out there to present this history. Do you think that this has any potential to, to, to make any kind of impact outside of Canada as well? This, this seems like the kind of thing that would be good. Like if you, if somebody lives outside of Canada and is only familiar with like the real, maple-washed version of the country that's been become so prominent, especially, you know, under 
Justin Trudeau as prime minister. I think this is this is a really good way of of um, conveying these these flaws with our with our country's history and uh, and institutional problems to to people who have never who are unaware of them as well because it, it it lays it lays out the information quite explicitly in the beginning as well do you, do you think it has any any hope of getting getting kind of accolades outside of outside of the country i don't know i think i think the best thing for it would be if it could get on pbs or something like that yeah yeah i i don't know what um what the typical what a typical american response to this would be or just anyone outside of <laughs> outside of Canada, uh, but I guess in America specifically is where you where where where, where the the romanticization of Canada seems to be most prominent, especially in uh, <laughs> in face of, uh, of of current policy. Yeah, and it's a romanticization that has directly impacted how I think the lack of visibility for Indigenous peoples. Um, that that because definitely certain racist attitudes and stuff like that. There, there is a, there is perhaps a sense that Canadians are kinder to certain ethnic minorities before, before. I, I will say that the like the PR heavy approach, you know, the current government, uh, it, it's not without its benefits. I mean, in many ways, it does raise the international profile of Canada as a as a country or cultural entity, which is in good, which is good in many ways. But at the same time, you have that effect, like a, a the, the maple washing effect, where the actual institutional and racial problems that exist in the country are kind of just erased or obscured as as a as a result of that, where people outside of Canada are invited to project their own fantasies upon what they see as this kind of weird blank slate of a country, which is not is not a good thing. Um, and you know, if this if this kind of work could gain gain notoriety, and and I will point out for if just if anybody outside of Canada is listening to this, it is on YouTube, and I don't believe there's any kind of region lock on the on the presentation itself, and it has uh, a full panel discussion attached to it at the end as well. Um, but I mean, if this if this could uh, if awareness of this uh, of of the secret path could really uh, catch on outside of Canada, I think it could do a lot to kind of repair that uh, that the the negative effects of uh, you know the the PR notoriety that uh, that Canada has gotten in the last in the last uh, year or so. Yeah, and it's important to realize like the, the events depicted happened in 1966. Mm-hmm. Like like by com- by comparison in the in the United States, the Civil Rights Act was was being passed. Like segregation was coming to to an end. Yes, yes, there are horrific systemic racial problems in both the United States and Canada. But the sort of turn of a se- of the century b- behavior by the government that that persisted till till the late sixties it's shocking in many ways. Yeah, I mean, in many ways that you you can draw parallels to 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 other countries, but just the I mean, just the sheer nature of this of 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 what happened with residential schools when they happened is is just so unbelievable, and that's why. Again, that's why it's just so hard to get people in, to to engage with it. That's that's the big problem, and it, and it's so recent. Obviously, the latest, uh, I mean, residential schools closed in the last residential school closed in 1996. At that point, people still weren't aware of what was actually going on in them. People were going to this to to these last few schools at the same time that that we were in like middle school. Yeah. When did you first hear about residential schools, Jesse? I, I was actually going to ask you because you you're from you're from Kenora. You live in Kenora. 
um, and you're sort of right at, at the heart of this. So I was I was curious about um, uh, your your education on it as well, and your kind of per- personal connection. High school was when we first uh, I first learned about it. I know my my experience is not necessarily going to uh, the same as everyone. I think I think the school I went to uh, was a little more progressive than a lot of schools out there. Uh, they were they were very they were always very forward at least in my middle school and high school about dealing with um, systemic racial problems. I I understand that's not the case across the country necessarily, and and not not all schools or all teachers were as willing to to deal with those issues. Yeah. So I've I grew up um, in a house that was two kilometers from Cecilia Jeffrey. My mom would go there for for gym class on occasion, not long after this event happened. I haven't talked to her about the exact year. In a way, I'm kind of, my stomach kind of turns at having that conversation. Yeah. Um, I never, I, the building is abandoned and it's mostly tore down, but the swing set is still there. I never ventured up there as a kid. It's quite, it's in a quite remote location and it's quite a hike up there. But my brother has gone, had gone up there as a kid and had played on the swing set. Um, I never heard of, about residential schools in elementary school. I never heard about them in junior high. The first time I heard of them was in class in high school, not by a regular teacher, but by a substitute teacher. He came in, he, he ditched the curriculum, no work, no work was done that day, and he talked. In high school history, we were, of course, taught about colonialism, about the Indian Act, and about how, how assimilation occurred back in those days. Yeah. But we were, but we were in, it felt intentionally in the dark about what was happening in 20th century politics, and certainly about Kenora history. Mm-hmm. The shameful thing is, I first heard about Chani the day, the day of the broadcast. By my supervisor at work, who gave me who gave me the McLean's article. I mean, God, it wasn't on the radio. It was not publicized on the radio. I know that um, Grand Council Treaty Three, our police service, they they um, had a screening. There was a march. I saw I saw the group marching towards towards the facility when I was coming home from work that day. I put two and two together after the fact, but but yeah, it's still it's still pretty. Still not exactly everyday knowledge here. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I just knew about it because I, I, I follow CBC stuff fairly closely. I, I really have to stress to everyone, and I'll, obviously this has been a bit more of a heavy conversation than we usually have on this show. If you haven't watched this thing, I, I, I urge you to check it out. It is on YouTube. It's on CBC's website. It's on demand. I'm sure there will be a Blu-ray release at some point. Um, and I know the proceeds collected from the, the vinyl record sale and the, the CD and the, the graphic novel all go towards uh, the Gore Downey Secret Path Fund for Truth and Reconciliation. So purchasing it does, uh, you know, support the growing awareness and and uh, the labor towards uh, that are going towards this cause. It, it can be very difficult for many to watch, but I, I find that it invites engagement and it's very compelling. It is very moving. Um I think anybody can 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 connect to it and sort of just kind of get it. They understand. You can understand just by watching this one work. It it accomplishes so much. Having it available on so many media and so many formats, um, I think 
is that alone is glowing endorsement for you know what a public broadcaster can do and how it should function this is this is definitely one of one of cbc's proudest moments and that's you know saying quite a bit because in my opinion cbc has been uh drastically improving in most ways in about the, the last 18 months or so i think if if you believe that animation can can accomplish uh you know dramatic and artistic things that that live action cannot i mean here's your proof right here i mean if if you watch things like anime for the same reason that that ian and i do uh this is like this is this is one of the great i can guarantee this is one of the one of the top things you should be checking out right now i just want to add that one comment made in the panel discussion was that cbc arts received three thousand facebook comments during the stream and they say it was their highest ever oh really event. Mm. yeah yeah, I know this. This kind of seems like a like a, a weird off-topic thing, but it's not off-topic. It's Canadian animation. It is yeah. on TV. <laughs> like it, it'd be one thing if it was just like like stills of the graphic novel set to thirty-second clips of songs. Even that would be acceptable. Like it would it would be an acceptable um, television documentarian approach. But this is a great piece. This is a great piece of animation. It rewards multiple viewings. Like it's not, it's not even, it's not even didactic, really. It's, it's beautiful. It's beautifully done. It's, it has, has visual metaphors. It's perfectly edited. It has, the music's wonderful. I think, I think a couple of these songs are my favorite tragically hip songs ever now. So yeah, there's nothing but, there's nothing but praise you can give it. As you have no doubt heard, Show Me uh, has reached its ultimate demise. Okay, so the, the thing about Show Me is that uh, when it was first being developed, it was supposed to be this project between all the uh, major telecom companies in Canada to offer a sort of not a streaming alternative, but a uh, way to purchase streaming rights to to content so that Netflix could get. Um, obviously, it hasn't really it, it didn't pan out. Um, Ian, what? Uh, what what were your thoughts on on the the the, uh, the fate of Show Me? I so I I'm a Show Me subscriber. I've I've enjoyed plenty of shows on Show Me, but as the months have gone on, I'm I'm come coming to realize that this is not exactly a killer app for majority of people. It's and there's several reasons for that. I think. Um, you, you have to, you have to think about Show Me's, uh, basically, basically sister service, which is Amazon streaming in the U.S. Now, you're not paying a monthly subscription to stream shows on Amazon. You're paying a yearly subscription to buy in, to buy into a service where you get free shipping plus access to their library. Now, that's different from Show Me. Show Me is just a $10 a month $10 a month streaming service where you're adding it either you're adding it to your cable bill. See, that's that's the whole thing with Show Me is that it doesn't with so many of these streaming services, like the way that they're deli- the way that they're delivered often in unique ways like, you know, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu. Maybe not Hulu so much now that they are a uh, they have eliminated their free option, but they just their mode of delivery, delivery in the US is is different and they they all they all offer something different in canada everyone just tries to imitate netflix and they like 
the, the, obviously Netflix is the the 800 pound gorilla in in Canadian media, but they uh, I guess this shows that you can't simply imitate them and expect uh, a similar success. Well, and going through their catalog, like I watch a lot of I watch a more of an average amount of Western television than I think most of my most of my acquaintances, and I'm like and I'm like, huh. For the average viewer, what exactly would motivate them to watch even ten, even ten of these shows if they're not, if they're not totally, if they don't totally just want to consume lots of content? Like at least Crave has the entire HBO catalog, like back catalog, finished series. Yeah. But show me, it's like you, ha- it's like you have some Star shows and you have some Amazon shows. Well, okay, maybe. Maybe a couple of years ago, like you could say that, oh, I have to see Transparent season one. It's such a such a killer app. Well, I don't think it's I don't think it is that works like that anymore. I don't think I don't think a person would go and start watching The Americans if they don't have if they don't have FX Canada or it's not a it's not a complete completed show anyway. Like it's. It's such a weird way of, watch, of watching TV, and Netflix, I think Netflix knows the key because they're into producing new, into their own content. They're into their shows premiering on Fridays so that people watch them over the weekend. Well, that's the whole thing about Show Me is that it's not like it's not trying to pioneer anything. It's not trying to. It's being very careful not to replace. Uh, what goes on with with cable services it's it's just sort of this this extra thing in the end they're they're almost paying people to to use it uh by including it in in cable packages they're not including in my cable package i still have to pay a ten dollar a month charge on it yeah all right well maybe i'm wrong about that i will i will say something positive about show me is that if you're a shaw subscriber you can access show me content vod for no charge on your cable box. And in terms of not worrying about bandwidth and not worrying about picture quality, that's a huge that's a huge plus. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a huge plus, but it's a nice plus. It's nice being able to watch a Hulu exclusive series on your cable box as if it was being broadcast in that qual- in that quality. That's pretty nice. But literally that's the only that's the only real perk they have. So again, I mean Netflix has a Netflix Canada, at least, has a lot of Mongol Media and Sony Pictures Classic stuff going back to 2000. Like, you have to be, like, that's a lot of backlog to watch if you're interested in what they put out. So, I don't even agree with the idea that Netflix is bad for movies. So maybe that's, maybe that's one way Netflix Canada is better because we get all the Mongol Media stuff. That's true. We do. And it's, it's interesting that, uh, or not, perhaps also telling that that Show Me is declining at this same time that that honestly cable and satellite seems to be imploding at a rate that uh, has kind of been unheard of up up until now. I mean, there there's word right now that uh, that that chorus maybe if not outright eliminating their bottom 15 services, um, at least taking enough focus off of them that they may as well eliminate them. Um, that is incredibly bold um i i think uh, i heard recently i think it was on an episode of canada land um i can't remember who was being interviewed but he mentioned that with all the changes that are all the legislative changes that are going on with 
with cable and satellite, um, in terms of actual Canadian production, everything is just there's kind of this big exodus happening. Uh, there's there's no place for 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 any new content to even really be developed. Um, and and apparently a lot of that's going you know uh, flowing into the CBC right now, which may explain the you know the 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 changes I mentioned before over the last like 18 months or so. Or you know I guess everyone was kind of expecting Show Me to die. I don't know what what the future prospects of Crave are at this point. They've like the HBO library can probably can can probably keep it going for a while. I, I was a little a little surprised to see the entire service was was being shut down, especially in the face of all this like drastic consolidation and and uh, and movement of talent that's going on. Yeah, and it, there's some odd things too. Like for instance, Star Trek: The Original Series can be seen on Netflix Canada, Crave, and Show Me. Original Twilight Zone is on Show Me and Crave. Like, where's the exclusive exclusivity in some of these contracts? What's going on? Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of exclusivity. The the, the only exclusivity that ever, ever seems to happen seems to be stuff that keeps content out of Canada completely. Or something like Black Mirror. Oh, yeah, that's... Two streaming services. What a mess that is. Yeah. I, um. Also worth pointing out is that uh, for, for Amazon Prime, uh, its imminent launch is treated less and less as speculation by the media as time goes by. News reports seem constantly implying that it's right around the corner. I don't know if that's true or not. I know cart.ca has sort of been perpetuating that idea for a little bit, that it would be launching before the end of the year. Um, I don't know if that's the, if that's really the case at this point, but, you know, considering that all those Amazon-exclusive uh, titles are not going to have a place to go after Show Me uh, shuts down, I wouldn't be surprised if, if that happens sooner than later. The, the most important thing to a lot of our listeners might be the... Uh, exclusive anime titles that Amazon has. Um, but it's probably worth mentioning that they can't even seem to get that stuff streaming in the U.S. right now. I think uh, The Great Passage and a couple of and uh, a couple of their other anime exclusives, uh, which they, hold, again, hold the worldwide rights for, but only stream in, in certain regions, are only streaming in the U.K., apparently. I, I don't think that Amazon really understood uh, how to deal with a lot of this stuff when they... When they when they went all in on that uh, Noe Tamina exclusivity deal. Yeah, I'm I'm just hoping that when, once this mess is sorted out, there'd be some way of uh, being able to watch Difficult People Season 3 when it comes out. Yeah, that's oh, going to be an orphan. Punch a wall. Punch a wall <laughs> come out. In fact, in fact, the idea of it not being able to be seen on in Canada would be a joke that the lead character would say in that show. Maybe... Uh, the best case scenario is that there's going to be some new material for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, any other thoughts on that before we move on? No. Rest in peace, show me. Yeah. <laughs> um, one last thing uh, I wanted to talk about in this episode uh, is the new Escaflone dub. Uh, just this week, Funimation finally released their uh, their Blu-ray of Escaflone. Uh, if you're not aware, they have created a whole new English dub uh, for this release. I still don't have my set. I ordered the the nice collector's package uh not the i do yeah in my hand right now D- did you get the collector's one or the uh I, the retail edition i got the retail collectors one, not the kickstarter one the retail collectors oh the retail collectors yeah i ordered yeah. i that's the one i ordered as well so you didn't get the seemingly no effort uh walmart edition that they also that they also put out you know you know this this box is really is really good my own my pet peeve with um with their limited editions, at least this and Cowboy Bebop, is that their booklets 
they don't seem to operate the philosophy of giving us anything to read, to read in the booklets, just just pictures. So it's kind of it's good, it's good, but it's okay. It's yeah, it's 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 a thing that's there that kind of justifies the cost. I will point out just before we get back to the dub that um I, I'm a little disappointed because apparently uh in all of the pictures of this set that were um, posted on different retail sites like Amazon and, and Right Stuff. It showed that it was it had these nice clear Blu-ray cases. Um, but apparently, and this was not stated anywhere, those clear cases were actually exclusive for uh, people who backed the Kickstarter. Um, but they still used that image of the Kickstarter in all the um, in all the publicity photos on on every retailer. Uh, but if you just bought the retail edition, um, it has just regular blue cases, which are okay, I guess. But you know, I really. <laughs> I really wish they had uh, given people a heads up on that. I was kind of, I was kind of hoping for the the, the clear cases. Pro- the, the important thing here, if you are not aware, so there are two English dubs on this. Uh, they did include uh, the original Vancouver dub, so I mean that hasn't been erased from existence. Actually went out of their way, um, but they have created a new English dub for this release, and they had a legitimate reason for doing that. Uh, if you know, back when Anime Village first released Escaflone in North America. Um, it was actually not the full uncut version. It was the broadcast version from Japan, which had, you know, about 10, 11 minutes uh, cut from the first yeah, seven episodes. About that. Yeah, uh, those were restored in the Japanese home video release. But for whatever reason, in the entire time that they had the license, Anime Village and later Bandai Entertainment never obtained that that missing footage. They, they, they never put it in any subsequent release uh, that they that they did for that series. And as a result, when the show was dubbed, um, that footage was was not uh, is not accounted for. Um, so in order to have a dubbed presentation, uh, they had to they, I mean, they had several theoretically, they had a few options. They could have gotten the uh, voice actors back to go back and redo those specific scenes, um, which, you know, when, when you when you actually look at the way voice acting works it's you can't really reassemble a cast 15 years later to to reprise these roles and just insert those new scenes into the the episode that's that's that idea is a non-starter um they instead opted to just redub the whole thing uh in the texas studio which honestly makes the most sense um i i I don't have my set yet so um i i've only been able to watch clip so the the new dub is good it's like perfectly serviceable i will say that they i mean they did a kickstarter for this whole thing and you know when you do a kickstarter you know you kind of assume that they're gonna go out of their way to do something they normally wouldn't do like i think it really would have been more appropriate if they had kind of sent the dub to vancouver and gotten the original cast to reprise their roles because that old vancouver dub i mean it's great that they went out of their way to keep it on this release but it's not very good uh, it is very well cast. I love the cast. I, I especially loved Kelly Sheridan as Hitomi, uh, Paul Dobson as as Falcon. I thought those were those were great performances, despite the fact that you know the the dub production was rushed, uh, but so they can get it on television. Yeah. It's kind of a mess. And you know if you're if you haven't watched that dub in like 15 years and you go back to it now with the new release, you're probably not really gonna like what you see. It's not gonna yeah. match up to any positive memories you have. I really would have preferred to see them send it to Vancouver to, ha- to to give that cast another another crack at it with a better directed dub but uh they they went with the Texas dub um my thoughts um first of all I've always 
first of all, the, the old ocean dub is particularly poorly written in its in its script. It yeah. has almost every episode has extremely incorrect translation errors that um, that's really bizarre for for ocean. Like they they have characters speaking the, the wrong dialogue in certain certain scenes. One character's mouth will be will be flapping while another while they give the they give the dialogue to the wrong character. Um, it's some of some of the translation is toned down as if they were antici- anticipating for the Fox broadcast. So it's it's very it's very spotty, and I've never I've never been fond of it that way to begin with. And and here's the thing about the voices: I love ocean voice actors. Um, I love them because of their ubiquity on TV, and I think they they do have tremendous range. I don't love how Ocean Dubs could cast 12 to 15 people in the entire show and have them play every single background character, mm-hmm. often, to, often to save money. Like, you can tell when, say, a late episode of Gundam Wing or a late episode of Escafone or even a late episode of Gundam Double O were taxed because they had Scott McNeil doing 10 different accents for <laughs> 10 different background characters. And I don't, I don't love that. It takes me out of the show. And at least from what I see of the Funimation dub, I may not be as familiar with, say, Caitlin Glass or Aaron Dismook. So I'm not really, I don't, I'm not really jazzed for them one way or another. But at least the background voices sound different. At least there's, there's a more variety in the voice acting. It just feel, it just feels more, just feels more natural in a way than than getting the same fourteen voice actors to to do every single role. I mean, I mean, truthfully, I'm probably just gonna watch the series in in Japanese with English subtitles when I watch it again, anyway. But I mean, it's still nice to have a a, a completed uh, good dub. But you know, it's nice. I, again, it was nice that they went out of the way. They actually included a separate disc just to make sure that the uh, the the ocean dub could be preserved. But Man, it, it is kind of disappointing that they didn't. I, I would have, prefer, I would have preferred to just junk that old dub and 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 do a new one in Vancouver. I would, have, I would have been totally okay with that. One more note. Uh, also, since the show has been on hiatus, it's also been announced that uh, there's going to be a new series of Gintama coming out next year, and I'm a little concerned about that. Uh, it's supposed to, you know, adapt the the last bit of the manga that hasn't been done yet. Um, and my my concern is that they are going to want to simul dub that series. Uh, and if it does get simuldubbed, as per the arrangement that Crunchyroll and uh, and Funimation have right now, I, I, I'm kind of concerned that they're going to want to do that with a Texas cast, um, and then we'll just kind of junk the 50 episodes that they already dubbed with the Vancouver voice actors, apparently, uh, that was posted on the CRTC website, but still hasn't been officially confirmed anywhere. Again, this is one of those kind of speculative non things I can't substantiate at this point, but... Uh, I just want to say I'm a little concerned about that uh, <laughs> that kind of prosperous return of, of ocean dubs might be thwarted uh, because of that recent deal. I don't know what to say to that. Yeah. I mean, yay, more doom and gloom. All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Big thanks to Ian for coming on. Uh, the theme song is by Ultra Kleistron. You can find this stuff at ultraclystron.com. If you want to contact me, you can reach me through the contact form at zonin.ca, through email, zonincanada at gmail.com, or by Twitter, at zonincanada. As always, if you know anyone who might like this show, 
please spread the word to them. See you again. 